What we considered last week when we looked at this passage together certainly does not answer all the questions regarding its passage. Verse 4 is challenging to properly apply and interpret. We are required to make some sort of judgment regarding Elijah's state of heart. We know the biblical principle, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so when Elijah speaks in this prayer in verse number 4, we do understand that that prayer is coming from his heart. A heart that to some degree is marked by sinful tendencies, and yet a heart that is guided by the Spirit of God as a newborn soul. So, yeah, we do have to make some sort of conclusions regarding Elijah's spiritual condition and his heart. And I certainly did not intend to be overly dogmatic in my assessment last time. And if you choose to differ in some areas, well, that may well be the case. But however, I do stand over my opinion, and I would be dogmatic about this, that the charge Elijah with two great sins is not valid And the two great sins that Elijah is often charged with is the great sin of self-pity and faithless fear. I don't think Elijah should be charged with either of those particular sins. But we do see a man who is in a position of discouragement. He is reckoned with the events around him and he says, It is enough. My work is done. Take away my life. But if we see this discouragement in terms of the unchanging and relentless apostasy, then I believe we maybe move from blaming Elijah to having great sympathy for him. In fact, we may see his prayer here as a reflection of a spirit-filled man properly applying his heart to the giving, given time. Rivers of waters run down mine eyes because they keep not thy law. No one reads that psalm and says to the psalmist, he must be depressed at that time. It's a recognized spiritual response to times of declension and apostasy. Indeed, the Lord through Joel and Joel 2, will say, let the priests, the minister of the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar, and let them say, spare thy people, Lord, and give not thine heritage to reproach, that the heathen should rule over them, wherefore should they say on the people, where is their God? That's the heathen's words. Where is their God? Times of spiritual declension and apostasy, and what is the proper response? It is to weep, to weep in the Lord's presence between the porch and the altar, to get before God in the place of prayer, and with tears say, why do the heathen say, where is their God? When was the last time we found ourselves downcast over the altars of God? Weeping. I think tears often come in our prayer meetings because of our burden for unsaved loved ones, and we should not dry those tears. But the tears are sometimes absent when we think about the state of the church in these days. We consider the wider professed church and we see a people who really have forsaken the ways of God in so many ways. 
forsaken the covenant and despised the promise of God, having itching ears, heaping themselves all manner of false teachers. These are applications of this present situation. In terms of 1 Kings 19, we see similar things for those who take the name of God but do not live out that name in reality. When do we weep for the doctrinal indifference we see in our days? It doesn't matter what you believe. I've mentioned a few times now that it's about 100 years from the printing of Gresham Machen's book, Christianity and Liberalism. And there's nothing new in that book in many ways. And that book is still relevant for today. And one of the issues was that the liberals were saying to themselves, well, it does not matter about the details of the Bible, the historical events, the miraculous events, those details don't matter. All that matters is that you have a relationship with God. And experience is what matters. And so long as you experience, it does not really matter what you believe about this or that. We're living in the same days. It doesn't matter what you believe regarding morality. And the Bible's teaching about morality. It doesn't really matter so long as you have an experience of God. That's a mark of spiritual apostasy and declension. When we do not submit to God's revelation and have a lower view of what it is to be a true Christian. And so tears should come. When's the last time I wept? about a professed church that seems to hold everything as being more important than God. All material things, they matter more to us than our relationship with the living God. Do we ever get despondent and face such realities? Do we get tearful in the consideration of the sake of God and truth? You see, when you consider Elijah here, It is clearly the case that he is discouraged, somewhat downcast, and he is encountering a time of great trial. Verse 4 is a trial in the life of Elijah. And what is of the greatest encouragement to all of us here today is that when Elijah confronts this trial, the Lord comes and deals with him in tenderness and in love. This is a time of need for the servant of God. It's a time of need for Elijah in his walk with God. And God comes and brings him grace to help in time of need. I was reading Krumacher this morning, his words on this section. And again, as he he starts this chapter on this part, he says this, This narrative belongs to the children of God, especially to the afflicted among them. The Lord's faithful care over his servants, especially in a dark and cloudy season, is here displayed in the most heart-refreshing manner. The Lord's faithful care. Grace to help in time of need. Note, first of all, please, the identity of the one who ministers this grace. Verse 5. Then an angel touched him. That angel is then described further in verse number 7 as the angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him. I'm going to suggest to you that this is no less than the Son of God coming to Elijah's aid. 
It is, I believe, a Christophany, an occurrence of Christ coming in his pre-incarnate state and coming as the angel of the Lord to bring help to his prophet in a time of need. The language itself, the angel of the Lord, is often used again regarding these Christophanies, and we'll see that in a moment or two. But even beyond that, we find the angel of the Lord performing miracles, providing in a miraculous fashion the the cake and the cruise of water. But even if that itself is not a miracle, and we can discuss that and debate that, what is miraculous is the power of that food and that refreshment to enable Elijah to go for 40 days and 40 nights in the strength of that all the way 200 miles to Horeb, the Mount of God. This is an angel of the Lord performing miracles. And I've said to you that this a reference to the angel of the Lord is at times a reference to Christ in his pre-incarnacy. Turn back, please, to Judges uh, chapter 13. Judges chapter 13, of course, is the time when the Lord comes to Manoah. It's the, again, prediction of God sending a judge, and Samson's going to come, and all that takes place in that event. But in Judges chapter 13, verse number 18, you have this reference, And the angel of the Lord said unto him, Why askest thou thus after my name, seeing it is secret? Now, before I look at that, note on down through this passage in the context When you get to verse number 22, Manoah said unto his wife, We shall surely die, not because they had seen the angel coming, but because we have seen God. Again, the wife makes it clear that God is the Lord. Here, verse 23, the wife said unto him, If the Lord were pleased to kill us. So it's clear in the context that the angel of the Lord is understood by Manoah to be God and by his wife to be Jehovah. And you're seeing very strong Trinitarian implications here. God is the Lord, and the Lord comes in the person of the angel of the Lord. And then verse 18, the question is, Why askest thou thus after my name, seeing it is secret? Now, if you have a marginal version of the authorized, you will see the word secret is the word wonderful. The word wonderful that is used in Isaiah chapter 9 about the coming Messiah, his name shall be called Wonderful. The incarnate Son of God has this secret, this wonderful name. It is the name given to the Son of God. Of course, when it comes to this matter, what is thy name? And then the angel answering, why askest thou after my name? It makes us also think, of course, of Jacob wrestling with the angel. Again, the angel there asks Jacob, why askest my name? And you go across to Hosea chapter 12. Turn across to Hosea chapter 12. You have, again, an inspired interpretation of Jacob wrestling with the angel of Genesis 32. And Hosea chapter 12, it says in verse number uh, 3, he took his brother by the heel in the womb, And by his strength he had power with God, yea, he had power over the angel and prevailed. He wept and made supplication unto him. He found him in Bethel, and there he spake with us, even the Lord God of hosts. The Lord is his memorial. 
Again, you have here a, an inspired understanding of Jacob wrestling, that who he wrestled with as the angel of the Lord was none other than the Lord God of hosts himself. So you put all this together. Again, you have the coming of the angel of the Lord in 1 Kings 19. The angel performing miracles. You compare that uh, with the visit to Manoah and the visit of the angel to Jacob, and then Hosea chapter 12, and I think you have a pretty strong argument that what's happening here is the Lord, the Son of God, coming to strengthen and to encourage Elijah. If that is so, then we are seeing here again the pre-incarnate Messiah, who is the same yesterday and today and forever. And so my mind immediately, of course, then will turn to Hebrews chapter 4. So turn there, and you'll see my reason for the title of today's sermon being grace to help in time of need. Because I think the grace that is coming to Elijah is grace that is coming to Elijah from the eternal Son of God, who, of course, becomes in time the person of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. The eternal Son of God takes himself a human nature. And so you have verse number 16 of Hebrews 4. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now the grace that we receive in time of need is, I believe, Christ's grace. And I can say that because when Paul is struggling with a thorn in the flesh... And he prays three times, but it is not taken from him. The Lord comes and speaks to him and says, My grace is sufficient. The grace of the second person of the Godhead is sufficient for Paul as he struggles with the thorn in the flesh. It is the grace of Christ. And so here in Hebrews chapter 4, note the word therefore in verse 16. Let us therefore come boldly. Wherefore? Why for? Because of what is said in the previous verses. Verse number 14. We have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. You see, we have the pre-incarnate Christ coming to Elijah. But we have more than that. We have this, the affection of the eternal Son of God in His care for His servant. But we have now the evidence of the unity of the Son of God with a true human nature. He's therefore, verse 15, an high priest which can be touched with a feeling of our infirmities. He is our great high priest, the eternal compassionate Son of God in union with this perfect human nature who now understands our infirmities in, in, in ways as he's lived out and through our infirmities. He's touched with these. I love the reference back in Hebrews chapter 2 that connects this Hebrews chapter 2 and the verse number 18. I'm just going to point out these few verses or few words in verse 18. He is able to succor. Uh, there's a huge context there, but please note those words. He is able to help us and strengthen us. This grace to help in 
time of need is not some spurious, hopeful consideration, the people of God. It is a certain guarantee because he is our great high priest. He has died for us. He prays for us. And Hebrews makes it clear that his help comes to us as individuals in our times of need. The Lord is king. Our high priest is high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He is the kingly priest. The Lord is king. As we sang this morning, who then shall dare resist his will, or please note the second bit, distrust his care. We get the resist the will bit. He's king. But he's a king who, as he brings authority to bear upon our lives, brings grace to help us in all of our times of need. And because the Lord is our great high priest or king, we must not distrust his care. All the way, the Savior leads me. Can I doubt his tender mercy who through life has been my guide? The Lord is kind. That's amazing. We thought of the glory of God this morning in our Bible class. The wonder of His supreme spiritual being. And that supreme creator God who so exceeds us, who is unlike us, who is so glorious in all of His ways, yet He condescends to care for us in kindness. I believe that there are those amongst God's people who struggle to believe that. You know, I get there are those who go the other direction. They see nothing but God's kindness and presume of His kindness in their lives, no matter how they live or what they do, even if they're outside of Christ. They presume, well, God's good and kind. But as a reformed reaction to the, if you like, the sentimentalism of evangelicalism, a reformed reaction to that has been to doubt God's kindness, to question the kindness of God in our lives. You know, the Lord may deliberately lead us to low places. He may deliberately lead us in His sovereign wisdom to places where we find ourselves in great discouragement and despondency, and at which points He then showers us with His grace that we will increase in faith and love in our God. The identity of the one who ministers grace, He is able to succor Elijah. Secondly, please note the sympathy of the one who ministers in grace. Again, back across to 1 Kings. And when you read these words, verse 5 through to verse number 7, those three verses, again, you cannot but feel the tenderness and the compassion with which the Lord deals with his servant. He knows exactly what Elijah requires, and he identifies with his person. Note the language, verse 5. Then an angel touched him. Verse number seven. The angel came the second time and touched him. I remember when I was doing some training for uh, you know, the family practice and the family, family doctor, there were those who would counsel us regarding you know, the, the non-verbal cues. And so they would, they would say to us, you know, when you're dealing with a, perhaps a difficult situation, you should have a box of tissues on the desk. And as the, the patient begins to cry, you should hand them this tissue, showing your empathy and your care for them. 
and it's appropriate time. So to just put your hand out and just touch them on their arm as their arm may be upon the desk. We were told these things. That's a tragedy. That people need to be told to do those sort of things. But such is the coldness of men's heart that they have to be told how to show compassion and sympathy towards others. But the point I'm making is that there is recognition even in the secular world that a touch communicates an identifying with the people. There's an identification in that touch. A recognition that you, you're entering into their sufferings and entering into their troubles. You, you're, you're recognizing that in the identification with the person. You think of the Bible's language itself. What are we told not to do? We're told to touch not the unclean thing. Because in that touch, we identify with that uncleanness. And so there's a, in, the, in the touch, there's a connection that's made. And so as the Lord comes and touches Elijah, he's identifying with Elijah in his suffering. The, the touch is precious. He touches me. So you turn across to Matthew chapter 20. I want to show you this when it comes again to the person of Christ in the Gospels. Again, my argument today is that the Son of God who comes in incarnate form is the Son of God who came in pre-incarnate form to Elijah. Again, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we understand the nature of Christ in the gospel. We see the same thing in Elijah and vice versa. The same. Compassion and care. And so look at Matthew chapter 20, verse number 34. Again, in reference to the blind men who sit by the wayside. So Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Like I understand that the touch here is, is a sense of, of conveying a miraculous healing. But note the connection between compassion and the touch. That the heart of Christ was toward them, and that heart is then conveyed in the touch. And the Lord did not need to be told these things. His heart flows out in the action. You've got the same in Mark chapter 1. Turn across to Mark chapter 1. Just one other reference in terms of this connection between the Lord's compassion and the touch. Mark chapter 1, verse 41. And Jesus, the leper here, of course, moved with compassion, put forth his hand and touched him. Identifying with the man in his sickness and in his suffering. The Lord comes and identifies with the person of Elijah. Just an aside, I suppose, but how much we all need the heart of the Lord in this regard. A compassion that will identify people in our congregation who are in their suffering and in their afflictions. The church has been said to be the only army to bury their wounded. We have people in our church and they are suffering from the wounds of sin. Some of those wounds are self-inflicted. They've harmed themselves in their lives by pursuing a life of sin, but they carry those wounds of sin. Others are caused by the sins of others. The sins of their enemies have caused sin wounds in the lives of some in the church of Christ. And we see people with their struggles and their problems and their inconsistencies. Sometimes we're very quick to say, they're probably not even saved. We're very quick to see the sin wounds and people struggling to get up in the morning and go forward in life 
And we say to ourselves, well, there goes another one. We need to get our hands out of our pockets and reach out. Maybe a phone call, maybe a letter, a card. It may be a physical touch in the Lord's day in an appropriate fashion, just putting a hand on someone's arm and saying, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm with you in your troubles. I'm praying for you. And Christ is able to bring grace in time of need. The mark of a just and a worthy army is that they will bear the wounded back home so that they can recover. The compassion of Christ, he identifies with his person. He also identifies with his condition. Again, you see that again back in, in our passage. The Lord knows what Elijah needs. And he clearly was in need of physical refreshment, a good rest, and some good food. Did you ever think of how physically demanding Mount Carmel must have been? I'm not just talking about rebuilding the altar. I believe Elijah was a strong man. That's not the point. But when you're under such pressure emotionally, and all that's going on in that time, and then he's getting with his knees, between his, his, his face between his knees in prayer, and he's calling upon the Lord, that itself is a physically demanding experience. And then he goes a hundred miles to Beersheba before then taking another day's journey into the wilderness of all places. He needs refreshment. Ahab, all the food's gone. He's eating his food. Elijah has been busy in the Lord's work. And busyness in the Lord's work has left him in a place of physical vulnerability. And he's weak and tired and needs a rest and some good food. You know, when we are tired and this is not some psychobabble stuff. When we are tired, we are in spiritual danger. That's a fact. Demonstrated by the disciples in the garden. As they sleep in tiredness, the Lord says to them, watch and pray. Why? Because you may enter into temptation. And there's a connection between their physical weakness and the sin that may follow them. There's a connection here. The devil shows us no sympathy when we're tired. And when tired, <laughs> this, I've got to be careful, this, this could sound like a self-confession. Uh, I should say, when, when I'm tired, I know. When we're tired, this is true. We are more prone to discouragement. We are more prone to irritability. We are more prone to a lack of self-control. And a lack of watchfulness over our tongues. There is genuine spiritual danger in weariness. Therefore, seek to prevent tiredness. I have no difficulty in saying to you today, eat well, sleep well, and get good exercise. I have no problem saying that. Well, this is a church. What are you doing? The Bible says, thou shalt not kill. The will of God is that we seek to preserve our physical frame, the frame that God has given us. Eat well, sleep well, and get exercise. But that's not always possible. 
And there are various things in a fallen world that may make that very, very difficult. And so when we are tired, I encourage you, be especially watchful. Be careful. Wives, if you identify tiredness in your husband, show them patience and grace in a recognition of their tendency, perhaps, to sinful actions in such a state. Husbands, the same goes for you and your wives. Children, if you identify things in your parents and you see them being difficult and problematic, show them grace and help them to get some rest. You know, families run these things together. And there's a recognition that this world is challenging and the Lord knows that Elijah needs sleep and a good meal. You know, beyond all that, and that's all well and good and helpful. Please note the Lord's understanding of his condition. I love the reference in Psalm 103, he knoweth our frame. Or Psalm 139, he is acquainted with all my ways. That's a wonderful encouragement. The Lord knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows what we need when we deny it ourselves. He is indeed touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Let me ask you today. Do you believe that your needs are beyond the eye of the Lord? Do you believe that you have problems in your life that the Lord cannot see? I know. I, I know you're going to answer immediately. No, I know the Lord. The Lord's eyes can see in all of my needs. Okay? Then live like you believe that. That he is able to see you in all of your needs. Do you believe that the Lord's hand is too short that it cannot reach to you in all of your needs? The infinite eternal God, his eye can see you in your need and his arm is able to reach you in your needs. And with perfect knowledge and perfect wisdom, he's able to give you that suitable grace to help in time of need. He's able. The sympathy of the one who ministers grace. And then thirdly, the suitability of the grace he ministers. The suitability of the grace that he ministers. The grace is suitable in its timing. Verse number 5. And as he lay and slept under a juniper tree, behold, then. I'm slow to make too much out of these sort of prepositional terms, but then, then, when. At his time of greatest need and greatest weakness, then the Lord came. The reference in Hebrews chapter 4 to grace to help in time of need can be translated grace for a well-timed help. The language would, be, would allow that sort of language that the timing issue is important here. It's grace in time of need and it's a well-timed help. And of course that's also taught in Psalm 46. God shall help her in that right early. Never late. Always on time. One of the challenges the people of God have in their lives is, well, why didn't God do something? I've got to this point. Why didn't God do something? Well, answer one, he did. He didn't see it, 
But God was doing something all the way to the point you asked the question, why didn't God do something? Because His grace is new every morning. And even though we're blind to God's hand, His hand is still at work. But beyond that, God didn't do what you expected. He did something, but not what you expected, because He was doing all things and doing them all well. The alternatives to what may have happened as God did nothing in your mind, the alternatives are disastrous. All of them are disastrous. God acts in supreme wisdom and in supreme perfection. The pastor doesn't feel that way. It doesn't feel that God is doing all things wisely and perfectly in my life. It doesn't feel that way right now. I understand that. I've been in times didn't feel that way. But it is that way. It doesn't matter how you feel about it, it is that way. My job as a Bible teacher and a pastor in this congregation is to put out the word so that faith triumphs over feeling. And though you may not feel that God is doing all things well and wisely and perfectly, He is. That's the Bible teaches that. So you've got to bring your feelings under the word of God and live by faith and not by feeling. God's ministering grace to Elijah was suitable in timing. It was also suitable in its content. And here I want to think, just very briefly, and we'll close with this, about the cake and the water. Now that was suitable because he clearly needed physical refreshment But before we see that, it was also suitable as they served as a reminder of God's past grace. The cake and the cruise. You think back to chapter 17. As as Elijah is in the wilderness and he's waiting for Carmel to come. You've Elijah says, chapter 17, verse number 13. There's a cake and a cruise. Verse 14, the barrel of meal shall not waste, neither shall the cruise of oil fail. Because there's a cake being made in verse number 13. There's bread and water. These these things are deliberate. God is reminding Elijah of past blessings. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. And it will surprise you what the Lord has done. And it will strengthen you for what the Lord shall do. I know that's not him, but you get the point. Because, Psalm 63, verse 7, Because thou hast been my help, therefore in the shadow of thy wings will I rejoice. Our recognition of God's past faithfulness strengthens us to live by faith in the present and in the future. Because he hath inclined his ear unto me, therefore will I call upon him as long as I live. I encourage you, somewhere in your life, whether it be at a computer, a phone, or a journal, keep some record of God's past faithfulness and blessings. I forgot a lot of things today. Forgot the offering, forgot Monday night's Puritan pages, lots of things I forget. That's human nature. And that's fine with incidental details like that. It's not important. 
But in the midst of a trial, if I forget God's past faithfulness, I am vulnerable to seasons of great doubt and discouragement. God is kind, blesses us in the past, and that past blessing can strengthen us for the now. But the revision goes beyond that. It points, I believe, spiritually to the means that God uses for our provision. Again, I've been talking in very general terms the last half hour about God giving us grace to help in time of need. And what does that actually mean? Is that just some abstract concept that, you know, without us really being aware of it, God helps us in some way? Well, no, I believe the cake here points us in the direction of the word of God. Jeremiah 15, 16 says, Thy words were found, and I did eat them, and thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. Eating the word. And what comes? The joy and rejoicing of mine heart. What is God's remedy for us in seasons of discouragement? It is the word of God. And therefore I say to you, arise and eat. The word of God is the nurturing and the encouragement that will strengthen you from day to day. Don't underestimate the strength in the word of God. I am so tired. I am so weary physically and spiritually. I get my Bible out and I read two verses and I fall asleep. Such is the state of my physicality at the present time. Well, if you're going to eat two verses, chew them well. Chew them well. Chew over and over those verses and make sure they strengthen you and you go in the strength of those verses for 40 days and 40 nights. Do what you can do, but feed upon the word and do not doubt God's ability to give you grace to help in time of need. God gives us a cake day by day. And more than once a day, we can have the cake of God's word. We can feed upon it, and it can be the joy and rejoicing of our hearts. Lord's Day by Lord's Day, a feast of gospel truths to nourish and encourage our souls. It is no wonder the children of God are so weak spiritually when there is so little appetite for the word of God. May God help us. The water, of course, I believe, refers to the Spirit of God. John 7 describes Christ, out of whose belly will flow rivers of living water. And he speaks this of the Spirit of God. The Holy Ghost not yet given because Christ was not yet glorified, but out of Christ comes the Spirit of God, described in terms of rivers of living water. Christ ministers grace to his children, not mystically, but by means of the Word and the Spirit. And there are so many people who will testify that though they walked in the valley of the shadow of death, they did fear no evil because they knew the Lord came with them and was alongside them. And that is the ministry of the Spirit of God. The invisible Spirit who blows as the wind. And people say, how did you know the Spirit came? Oh, I could not see him, but I knew his sweet influences. I knew what he did in my heart. 
He brought me back time and time in the Word, and in the Word He showed me His promises, He showed me His grace, His kindness, and I was strengthened in time of need. It's a great folly to neglect the Word in times of trial, and yet that is again our tendency. But Christ ministers to us by His Word and by His Spirit. Suitable in timing and in content and then for purpose. And this will lead on to our studies in future weeks. What happens in verse number 8 is he arrives and eats, verse 7. The journey to Horeb is too great for him, but he eats and drinks and goes and strength that meat 40 days and 40 nights. Christ's grace is sufficient for us to do the task that God has appointed for us. Whatever you're calling... As a child of God, he is able to give you grace to help in that time of need. As a single person, as a young person, as a husband, a wife, a widow, a widower, Christ has come. He is the incarnate high priest. He's touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He's died to see if he lives, to sanctify. He has called you. He has chosen you. He's changed you. And he will work in you and through you for the glory of his name in the kingdom. You have a task to do. And Christ's grace is sufficient to guide you in your task, whatever that may be. He will not fail his people. This is probably one of the most touchy feeling sermons I've preached in a long, long time. It did me good. recognize the importance of refined and heavy theology. That's tonight's sermon, Romans 9. But even the connection there. Because God in His sovereign grace will have mercy on those whom He will mercy. Compassion. Compassion saving us. But the compassion that saves us does not cease the moment we name Christ as our Savior. That compassion continues with us all of our days. He is the eternal, compassionate, kind Son of God. May you live by faith in the Son of God today. Let's pray. Eternal God, we come before Thee and we can say, what a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. We thank You for the Son of God, the Savior of sinners, our great sympathizing High Priest. Help us, O Lord, not to trust, not to doubt, not to fall into distrust regarding Your ways in our lives. So many questions. So many things we don't understand, but Jesus doeth all things well. Help us to rest in that today. And no matter what comes tomorrow, in your will and the days to come, help us never to question, Jesus doeth all things well. Help us to walk in your ways, to walk by faith and not by sight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.